What's up, Story Geeks? It's Jay. And Daryl. On today's show, we are going to dig deeper into Event Horizon. Finally. We'll be digging into what the concept of hell is. We'll be digging into how these characters experience hell. And why exactly is this movie scary? Yep, that is the question. And while I may not enjoy watching this movie at all, I really enjoyed this discussion, as I think you guys will too, because our guest today is the very host of the Empire podcast himself, Mr. Chris Hewitt. And we are super excited to have him on. It was such a great discussion. You guys are really going to love it. Obviously, he is a podcasting expert, and so it's just super fun to talk to him and dive into these themes. And it's a movie that he really loves. Mm Mm-hmm. He talks about it a lot on the Empire podcast, which is why we asked him to talk to us about it. And the result was just super fun. I think you guys are really going to dig it. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on Event Horizon and maybe even the topic of hell. Why not? Uh, Which you can share with us in the Story Geeks Facebook group. The link to our Facebook group is in the show notes. And our aftercast this week will be a retrospective on Scary Movie Month. All the movies we did in Scary Movie Month, we'll be talking a little bit more about all of those. There's also a Trump impression involved, so that's... (laughs) Pretty good one, too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It will be accessible to everybody for a little while, so all everybody, the public at large, although we are going to make it available only to Patreons at a certain point in time. So we just love our patrons. We really respect them. We want to deliver as much value as possible. Uh, So thank you guys for supporting the show if you support us on Patreon. But either way, you can go listen to that for free now before it's actually put behind the paywall. That's right. And on the off chance that you're tired of scary movies and tired of hearing us talk about scary movies, then fret not. Salvation (laughs) is coming. Um, Starting next week, we are off the scary movie topic. Next week's show, we will be uh, counting down our top five time travel movies, which is something that people have suggested to us. And so we did that with Mike Faber and Michael Gordon from ESO. And that was super fun. And then the week after that, on September 18th, we will have our third Star Wars character journey. And we're talking about Leia with our special guest, Alexis Torres. So Both fantastic shows. That's what's coming up. Thanks for listening in. The Story Geeks podcast is produced by the Reclamation Society. Well, here we are. We're going to dig deeper into Event Horizon. This is the conclusion of our Scary Movie Month. Yes. And we're really excited for this one. So let me say a little something here. If the event horizon can bend space, travel to hell, and return an evil sentient overlord, then we can certainly bend the internet, reach out to the UK, and commune with the overlords of film journalism at Empire Magazine. (laughs) So we've done just that. And today we have a guest of such lethal cunning that he can spend six hours breaking down a two-hour film (laughs) and leave us wanting more. So we're excited to welcome the host of the Empire Podcast, Chris Hewitt. Welcome, sir. Hello, how are you? Doing great, doing great. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, not a problem to you, see. Very excited about this. <laughs> Love this film. Yeah, you talk about it a lot on the podcast, so we were excited that <laughs> you wanted to talk about it with us. Our, our, by the way, our, our uh, listeners made us watch this and break this down. Because Daryl and I both had said, yeah, this movie scared us to death as kids. It scared the <laughs> shit out of us. And then they said, you must watch it again and podcast about it. I'm like, all right, fine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting rewatch, isn't it? I hadn't seen it in a long, long time, I'll be honest. I, I, I talk about this in the podcast an awful lot, Event Horizon, because it really left an impression on me when I saw it uh, in 1997. I saw it in the cinema, and it scarred me. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and you go back, and I was terrified rewatching it. I rewatched it, especially for this, because I'm, I'm a professional guy, so I like to do my research. <laughs> and uh, I watched it today, because I like to leave things to the last minute. And I was so terrified. I think I tweeted saying, I hope the scales don't fall from my eyeless sockets. Because, you know, when you, you build something up in your mind and you, you turn other people onto a film, you go, it's, oh, you should see this film, it's terrific. But at the back of your mind, there's a nagging little voice going, what if it sucks? What if it's, yeah, yeah. What if it's terrible? And uh, I rewatched it and it's, you know, it's an interesting film. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a mess. But uh, it's, when it works, boy, does it work. Mm. yeah 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 i think i had 
a similar feeling. I, I like you. I saw it in the theaters, and I was scarred when I saw it too. I didn't even when I drove home. I didn't even want to walk from my car into the house. <laughs> I, I was too scared of the dark. Um, so watching it again, I wasn't nearly as scared by it, but it was certainly interesting to see it again. What'd you think seeing it again, Jay? After well, years? I so my wife is into horror films, and I'm not that much into horror films yeah. generally speaking. So she made me watch it when we were dating. And uh, I just date movie. I just swore through the entire movie, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I uh, but what I, what was interesting about this viewing is that when I was actually looking at it from a deeper perspective and looking into what it's actually trying to say about the world in general and about storytelling and all this, that really intrigued me. And I had a, a blast watching it this time because I felt like it actually did some things with its story that were really compelling. So I liked it a lot this time around, which is bizarre because I hated it the first that time. That is bizarre. Yeah. Okay. Now that's interesting. So, okay. Well, we have a recurring question here on our Scary Movie Month. And uh, that question is, what makes this movie scary? So, Chris, what do you think? What makes this one scary? <laughs> I mean, there's obvious answers, obviously, but what do you think? Um, well, it has naked Sam Neill. That's <laughs> yeah. It destroys Doctor yeah. Grant for us. It really does. Uh, that's pretty terrifying. Uh, I, I think what got me this movie got me on a weird primal level because it's a strange, it's a strange mixture of a lot of films I love. It's a, a mixture of The Shining. It's a mixture of Alien. It's a mixture of Hellraiser. All films I love. Uh, it's it's almost as if someone saw. Solaris and said what if we did Solaris but a Solaris where something actually happens and <laughs> and we try and tap into people's primal fears so it's about you know a fear of the unknown obviously it's about a fear of hell that great concept that mass construct that that terrifies us all whether you're yeah. an atheist agnostic or whether you're a believer uh and it's it's a it's got you know it, it taps into our fear of um of the dark as well and it does so rather brilliantly i think yeah what do you think jay yeah i agree with that i also had the fear of the unknown on there i also had you know it starts with this it just hints at this and it, i'm glad it doesn't dive into it too far mm -hmm. but there's it starts with this uh exploration of hubris like a lot of films do right yeah. but should mm -hmm. we even be doing this in the first place like is this is something that we should be trying to accomplish mm. um and we ask ourselves this in real life because we see like the large hadron collider right and we're like yeah. are we gonna create a black hole like is, is that something <laughs> we're gonna do um the, uh, the the thing that i think it really hits on is when it talks about the human psyche and how the human psyche deals with hurt and guilt and fear and that to me is really fascinating. And then it, it wraps that up in kind of that, like what Chris talked about with the, the concept of hell. And it mm. turns all of those things around and just explores those things. I think that that's really cool and fascinating. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think. Go ahead. No, sorry, man. Uh, I mean, yeah, I was just going to say the, uh, the Huber thing is really interesting because this movie's, I find this movie very, very fascinating from a point of view of protagonist and antagonist. And the movie starts with, Dr. Weir. He is our he is our eyes, no pun intended, hmm. into this world. <laughs> he is the you know the character that we bond with, we identify with throughout the uh, for the first 30 40 minutes of this film. And he turns out to be the bad guy. Uh, but it's an interesting idea about the concept of hubris as you said in that it feels very much like a 50s sci-fi. You know what I mean? It, it has yeah. which has those, that that grand stereotype of the scientist who dabbles too far, pushes things too far, falls in love with his creation, you know, falls in love with what, what, what the, the potential of science, and then ultimately turns into a giant naked hell beast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, 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 you're right, it does, it does kind of discard that, but also not really. The whole thing, the whole movie is driven by uh, Dr. William Weir's loss and guilt, yes, but mm -hmm. also his pride. And his pride and his love for his creation, which is the event horizon. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, uh, what's great about it, like what you're saying, is that it, it's not as, um, like Jurassic Park, let's say. Like hubris is like at the core of that movie and it keeps coming up over and over, over, and, over and over again. Um, 
but here it is like a driving force of the character and it's just i don't know it's it does it so well that a lot of horror tries to tackle some of these subjects and it just gets lost in its own like it's like it's like trips over its own feet but this mm. film just keeps doing it really impeccably all the way through i think yeah yeah and i think the thing that you guys have hit on all the big stuff but i think the other thing that kind of scares me about it is this evil sentient ship just seems completely unstoppable like there just seems to be no hope whatsoever it's like all these people are just going to die and they're going to die gruesomely. <laughs> it's just it's just the hopelessness of it scares me. So. That that surprised me honestly because this came out 1997, which I consider to be one of the best years, certainly for blockbusters. And you uh-huh. know, it, that's the year of Con Air and Face Off and Ghost mm-hmm. Point Blank and LA Confidential, it's not blockbuster, but you know what I mean. Austin yeah. Powers came out that year and that, that was a real real summer for me. And Event Horizon came, came out for, for us in the UK, I'm going to say around about August or September. It was right at the tail end of the blockbuster season. I may be completely and utterly wrong about this. It may be November, but my, my, my memory is August. And you, you, I went along to see this film, and I didn't really know a lot about it. I'd read something about it in Empire Magazine. I didn't work for Empire back then. I just read it. Uh, and I knew it was Paul Anderson. I'd seen... I'd seen shopping, I'd seen Mortal Kombat. Yeah. I was intrigued by him. Loved Sam Neill, loved Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, loved horror movies set in space. I was on board, but I, I, wasn't expecting, I wasn't expecting the film to be so resolutely bleak <laughs> in, the middle, <laughs> yeah. in the middle of the summer season. I mean, this is a film in which the hero of the movie ultimately makes the, <laughs> really makes the ultimate sacrifice. And... At the end of the film, Captain Miller is alive in hell, and that ain't that ain't good. That's not good for no. him. That's not a good place to be, and uh, that's a really that's a really dark place for any movie to leave its, its hero, let alone uh, quote unquote a summer blockbuster. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this concept of hell. And um, Jay, why don't you start us off on this one? What is hell according to Event Horizon? Yeah, I think this is maybe controversial to say because this has been done several times, I think, in film. But I think this is maybe my favorite depiction of hell in film, which is crazy, right? Like, Which is such a fun thing to try to figure out. What's my favorite depiction of hell? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Let's let's have fun on a Saturday. What do you want to do? Let's talk about our favorite depiction of hell in film. Um, So here's what I would say. I think that those experience hell become self-focused consumers. And they want to consume everything around them. And mm-hmm. I think that that's true of the crew of the Event Horizon. Um, which means that hell itself is the heart's selfish desire from multiple ang- angles. Like, those already dead want to consume their family and friends. So you see uh, Weir's wife, who he thinks, like, oh, there's my wife. That's awesome. I want to go see my wife. And then she basically tries to consume him and bring him into her yeah. hell, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um but those still living want to redeem themselves of something that they feel guilty about or at least bring that thing back from the dead. And so they're all consumed with trying to bring that thing out of hell and relieve uh, uh, their own guilt and relinquish that guilt. Mm-hmm. So this intense focus on the self and on past guilt and grief uh, sets loose this concept of darkness and then the darkness grows out of that and feeds on that. And to me, that's a pretty compelling depiction of hell, Mm -hmm. um, a place where all of our desires are fulfilled at the expense of those around us. And in the end, that inner darkness consumes us, even um, the very essence of our being, and in a sense, our soul at that point. So I just think that that was, I I just kept reading into that. I'm like, this is a fantastic (laughs) exploration of this concept. (laughs) <laughs> I can tell you right now, almost without um, fear of being proven wrong, that that is uh, a deeper reading of this film than the filmmakers intended. <laughs> <laughs> that, that tends to happen on this show. <laughs> <laughs> you you I mean, should have tried to hear us break down the Meg. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I got to yeah. listen to that episode. Uh, we actually did that luck. one with a friend. We did that with Ali Plum, with one hey. of your old buddies. So. Oh, good. Good yeah. Ali. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll check it out. So, yeah, I, I think that's, that's a fantastic reading. Uh, I think uh, I, my reading is much more superficial. There are two different types of hell in this film. There's a literal hell, which is a very Hellraiser-influenced, very S&M, very you know, bloody and gory. Kind of the end of society meets 
the Cenobites with people, as you say, consuming each other and ripping each other apart, tearing out their eyes because what they've seen is so horrible that they can't they can't uh, bear to process it anymore. And then the hell for the other characters is you know, that old saying, Sartre, that hell is other people. And uh, but it's also the concept of guilt. I mean, that everyone is haunted by their own personal hell, which is a moment of guilt or a moment of loss and something that continues to, to haunt them. I, that's interesting you think that the ship is manifesting these people, whether it's, it's uh, the, 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 the crewman Miller lost or whether it's Weir's wife, Claire, and that they themselves are, then have a malevolent, malevolent agenda that's interesting. I'm not sure I see that. I see the I see everything being driven by not the ship, but by this spectral idea of hell. Mm. I don't know, it's weird for me to think about because it, seem, it it seems like their description of it in the movie is that it traveled to another dimension, right? Do they mm. say that? Uh, yeah, exactly. yeah, I believe so. Yeah. 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 So it's like a hell dimension. Yeah. Which makes me think of Buffy the Vampire Slayer because <laughs> there's references to hell dimensions there too. Yeah. Um, so it's it's weird to think of it as like a spiritual sense of hell, or is it just another location? Like there's a, mm. a place somewhere out there in space that is that horrible. The upside down, you know? basically. The upside yeah, down, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, but God, no, that's it's frightening. It is interesting because it does seem to su- suggest that uh, that hell is a physical place. Yeah, uh, or at least our 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 understanding of this place is that it's hell. It might not be. It might just be a really horrible place. But uh, certainly, the the the, the films the films interesting because there is yeah, it's a sci-fi movie, and I don't necessarily think there's a, a a fight between good and evil in the classic sense. You know, classic sense of when you when you incorporate hell into a movie, usually you have you know. God and Satan and good versus evil, yeah. but it is interesting in this film because there's religious iconography studded all the way through it. So the event horizon itself is a crucifix seen from certain angles. It's an upside down crucifix. Uh, you know, mm. we're at the end. You know, you could argue that a lot of his markings look like they could be crucifixes. It's a it's a very interesting film, but I don't think it really necessarily knows what to do with that angle. And I yeah. don't think it really. I don't think it really truly resolves it. Um, you know, is Miller, is Miller in some sort of way? Is he a, is he a, a vessel of the forces of good? Or is he a, is he a, a soldier of God, or is he just a dude trying to stay alive? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't think it really ever, really really resolves that. Yeah, totally. And you mentioned the iconography. I'm going to jump on that because um, Jay has a theory. And we want to see what you think of it about mm-hmm. why Smith, mm-hmm. uh, which is played by Sean Pertwee, never really experiences the dark of the ship. So this shit talk is about yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I found I found this I found this really fascinating because I was starting to watch the film and I go, some of the people have direct experiences with the darkness, and then some of the people are sort of avoiding this these direct experiences. They have indirect experiences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Smith struck me because I believe in the beginning of the film, there's this really subtle reference to him doing the sign of the cross over himself as the things start to manifest. So he starts to feel the fear and he goes, oh, okay, I got to protect myself, does the sign of the cross, right? Oh, okay. And then he doesn't ever experience the darkness the same way that the other people do. He doesn't ever come face to face with it. He does experience consequences of it, of other people experiencing it. Yeah. And I just thought that was really interesting because it made me wonder if they were trying to suggest that, because I think you're 100% right, Chris, they do mm. not come to conclusions about these things, yeah. at least not blatant ones. But it, this is obvious, this is, um, I, I remember watching uh, Penny Dreadful, which mm. w- had an unfortunate early ending, because I was kind of wondering how they were going to play that out. And they seem to be trying to take different views of spirituality and draw them in. And then they took a very traditional view of the ending just because it seemed like they had to cut it off short. And it was like, well, we got to do something like take this (laughs) traditional view, Mm. which is they've been kind of avoiding. And I feel like this film is I don't know if it's coming to any conclusions, but it was interesting to me to see that happen because I almost what I actually thought at the end of it was that's a very tiny reference. 
But if you would have asked me to to what we do in this show, which is we're gonna <laughs> dig really deep into it, mm-hmm. I would have been like, it seems like they have almost like a um, uh, a Catholic definition of how people would experience this evil thing. Um, and that specific reference seemed to protect him in some way, shape, or form mm-hmm. throughout the, the rest of the film. I don't know. That's interesting. I, I would say it's much more simple. Uh, I'd say it's because he's played by Sean Pertwee. And, and um, is, is therefore... No, I'm kidding. I love Sean Pertwee. He's great. Great guy. But um, I would say that's because Smith's a bit of an empty vessel himself. And he's not the, he's not the only person who doesn't who 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 escapes unscathed i think stark doesn't really have experiences with with the dark or with the evil or however you want to however you want to describe it i think cooper who is a really strange character feels sometimes like he's almost walked in from another movie um, yeah <laughs> towards the end when he's surfing home and he's providing his own commentary it, it feels very strange um he doesn't really he's not he's never really fully aware of how screwed they all are um, which is which is interesting um but yes yeah, smith but also my, my theory with smith is that he's just he's the one who is on the event horizon the least and therefore mm. it you know it's 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 it has this ability as we see from the very beginning of the film to reach out across fast distances to get into weir's mind but i think the connection with weir is much deeper and uh than it is with smith uh, with Smithy, I think, uh, but I also think he's quite a simple guy. I'm not necessarily sure he's a guy who has a lot of guilt or a lot of loss in his past. Mm. There's another possibility as well, of course, which is that you know we know that there's a much longer version of Event Horizon, uh, mm. uh, yeah. and I have never seen this this longer version. I don't think anyone's ever going to see it. My understanding is that it does exist. There is a longer, longer cut. You can see hints of it throughout the film. Um, but my understanding is that the, the 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 cut is so degraded that it's just never going to be salvageable. Yeah, it's I basically think destroyed, right? Essentially destroyed. I know people who do have copies, but um, but not not on film. Um, and I'd love to see it one day. But I th- I think you can see hints in the movie of DJ uh, Jason Isaac's character. I think he had a run in. I think there was a hallucination or a or a manifestation for him as well because he he's very quick without scalpel. There's a moment uh, about halfway through the film when um, I think it's no, I think it's um, Justin. Someone, someone's playing up. I can't remember who. I've just watched this film. I can't remember who. And he holds his, <laughs> he holds a scalpel to someone's throat, and he's very very quick to do that. And I get the impression that he he also had a sequence where he sees something or experiences something. Yeah. Um, so who knows? Maybe Smithy had one as well. But uh, they cut it. But I suspect it's just simply that he's um, a bit of a straight-down-the-middle, two-dimensional guy who doesn't really have anything bad in his past. Yeah, yeah. That is, I think that that, based on his character, could very well be the correct take. I just felt that, that it was interesting that those two things were aligned, that he did the Son of the Cross and that he didn't experience as much as... No, maybe I'm he's just the relief. Like everybody else has seen all these horrible things. Maybe we need one character who can just be lighthearted. <laughs> that's you know? right. That's right. Yeah. No, absolutely. But you're you're absolutely right because the hell as a concept is introduced fairly early in the film. You know, they you know they talk about going to hell and what if it brought something back? And no point in the film. If that happened to me in that situation, I would I would find God in a hurry. I would <laughs> <laughs> I would I would be doing the sign of the cross. I'd be I'd be studying for the priesthood. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd fully subscribed, fully fully paid up. Uh, Seminary no one, here I come. Absolutely, <laughs> but no one does that in this movie. So yeah, again, it's it's a concept that they don't really follow through on. Yeah, yeah, yeah very true. We made references earlier on to the eyes and mm. the missing eyes there. Why is that so horrific? What do you think, Chris? Why does that add to the horror of this film? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want to be Mr. Cliche, but it's the, it's the whole windows to the soul thing. Yeah. And uh, I think there's, there's a really lovely slash horrible concept in this movie. Uh, and it, it harkens back to Ray Milland in The Man with the X-Ray Eyes. Uh, when he he removes his eyes after he's gone through everything he's gone through, I don't know if you've ever seen this film. It's a cracking old B movie from the fifties. Again, mm-hmm. about hubris and dabbling and with things you don't understand. And uh, 
he has the uh, ability to see things on a on on various different. I'm giving this movie away. This is a spoiler special for that film, but. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> At Every one end. of our shows is a spoiler special <laughs> for something. That's just how we roll. It's okay. <laughs> All right, good, good, good. You've so inspired he, us. Yeah. He, uh, if, I, if my memory serves me right, he rips his own eyes out, and then the end of the film is him saying, he, st- he says, my God, I can still see. And there's that mm-hmm. concept with, with, uh, you know, with, with certainly with Dr. Dr. Weir, that he rips his eyes out, but it phases him not in the least. Um, but there is an idea as well, I think, that people see things that are so horrible so disgusting uh, that they can't bear to, to to live with those memories, and I think it's one of the reasons why Justin. One of the first things that Justin does whenever he tries to commit suicide, you know, the you know, his he bleeds from his eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's certainly something that, that's that's interesting. You see lots of little, there's lots of uh, attention given to the eyes. You see, you see in a lot of the characters who have experiences with the gravity drive and with the the presence. Should we say that? The presence? Let's go for that. Uh, sure. <laughs> that you see the gravity drive lighting up in their eyes as well. And I think there's a, there's a real connection there. Yeah. Mm. I think part of it too for me is it's a part of their eternal torture in hell because mm. if they no longer have their eyes, the last mm-hmm. thing they saw was them losing their eyes. <laughs> like the last yes. visual memory they have is the most horrific thing they've ever seen. Interesting. Yeah. So. Yeah. I had in my notes, I had the exact same thing about the windows, window to the soul concept, because those who are still alive are being seduced through their eyes, right? Like mm-hmm. they're being seduced by their own yeah. guilt to try and assuage that guilt. Um, but those who are dead don't have eyes as if they've already lost their soul. Mm-hmm. And when they lose their soul, they become these inhuman demonic consumers like we talked about before. So I think that, that they're definitely... Uh, it, it might be cliche, but they're like mm-hmm. leaning into that cliche yeah. to try and yes. say something about it. So, but it, it's it's interesting. Again, this this film, I you know, I think there was all sorts of behind the scenes shenanigans going on, and you can sometimes feel that not only in the fact that it's a it's a shorter cut of a much much longer film, uh, but there's also there's certain sometimes tonal shifts. I you know, talked earlier on about the, uh, the the Cooper flying back to the the ship thing, which doesn't mm. it just doesn't feel like it's in this dark bleak no holds barred visceral horror movie that feels like it's it's in a different film hmm. and i think sometimes you can see that as well in certain inconsistencies you say there the you know, obviously claire uh, weir's wife she is eyeless pretty much from the moment we see her she's she's got no eyes but other manifestations of people's guilt and of people's loss so the the crewman that, that miller failed to save he has eyes um you have also um uh, peter's young uh, Peter's young son, who mm-hmm. lures her to her death, he mm-hmm. has eyes. So it's slightly inconsistent about that. And I wonder if that's partly because in Claire's wife, the evil or the event horizon, or whatever you want to say, is making direct overtures towards Weir. It's mm. himself. Uh, it, it wants to bond, weirdly enough, it wants to bond with its creator as much as he ultimately wants to bond with it. And... Uh, so I think it's being very open with the, uh, with the eyeless thing very early on. Before we continue, we just want to let you guys know about all the additional stuff you can find over at thestorygeeks.com. So you can find our latest YouTube videos, Patreon posts, additional content written by our awesome blogger, Ashley Pauls, who shares her own thoughts about all our podcast questions. All of that is over at thestorygeeks.com, so go check it out. Be sure and check out the entire past month that we've done on all of these scary movies. So you can get your scary movie fix for sure. You can talk about A Quiet Place, Get Out, The Meg, our top five horror movies, Event Event Horizon, you're listening to that one right now, so good on you, but go check that (laughs) stuff out. All of that, plus Ashley's perspective on all of these things can be found at thestorygeeks.com. We'd also love if you would support us, and there are three different ways to do that. You already heard me mention Patreon, so exactly what is Patreon? Well, Patreon is a website that allows fans to support creators like us. When you support the show for as little as $2 a month, I will say most people do $3, but for as little as $2, we show our thanks by giving you rewards like additional content. So if you love what we do, we would really appreciate it if you became a patron. Please consider supporting us, like I said, for as little as $2 a month or go up to the $3 tier or go up to the $5 tier and you can actually be part of the show because we read the $5 contributor answers 
on the show. On today's Patreon Aftercast, Daryl and I delve deeper into all the movies from Scary Movie Month. And it'll be free for the public for a bit, but after that, only Patreon supporters will get access to it. So go check it out before it's only available to those supporters or become a supporter. It'll be available to you all the time. Um, Also, you can support us by purchasing merch. Head over to shop.reclamationsociety.org and you can find all of the Story Geeks merch. If you're a big geek and you love diving deeper into these things, then you're probably just like us. And a great way to show that support to us and a great way to identify yourself with us is to get some logo wear. And finally, if you're like me and you're a big theme park fan, check out ModernMouseBoutique.com. Modern Mouse Boutique sells geek fashion accessories, and they're famous for having some of the highest quality mouse ears you can buy. If you're planning a trip to a theme park, or if you're just a geek fan in general, check out ModernMouseBoutique.com. Use promo code StoryGeeks. That's all one word, StoryGeeks, no spaces. Use promo code StoryGeeks and get 10% off your next order. Links to our Patreon page our merch store and the links to our Patreon page, our merch store and the modern mouse boutique.com. I'm going to try that again. Links (laughs) to our Patreon page, our merch store and modern mouse boutique.com can all be found in the show notes or on our blog at the storygeeks.com. Thanks for letting us interrupt. Now let's get back to the show. What do you, this is not one of the questions that we had in there, but I'm just curious. Obviously this is an incredibly gory, film (laughs) yeah lots of blood lots of mutilation lots of horribleness um do you guys think that adds to the story or do you think it's at a level where it's distracting from the story because i know that um so from what i've heard anderson when he directed mortal Kombat, he was hoping that that would be an r-rated film and they didn't let that happen and so yeah. I've heard that Event Horizon is sort of his chance to let loose after being yeah. forced to make a PG-13 movie. Oh, <laughs> so I'm just curious if you think it went too far. No, I mean, you could argue it didn't go far enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds it's, like there's more footage for sure. So. It sounds, yeah. I, I, I know the hell, the hell sequence or the, the sequence where the crew members are tearing each other apart. There's a, a longer version of that, that's, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, no, I think, I think the, the gore is pretty much judged perfectly um and i love the fact that it's all for the most part anyway practically practically done yeah um uh, there's very little cg blood uh in this no it absolutely it adds to it doesn't add to the story but what it does do is it adds to something that i still think is probably event horizon's greatest trump card which is its its mood its atmosphere and i think it, it was it was that 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 got me whenever i first saw it it's sure. uh you know, Paul Anderson, I think he's a really, he's a bit of a conundrum. He's a really, really talented director. Um, but it's all about the material for him. And I don't think he's ever really had good material. But he's also prone to lapses of judgment. And uh, he's prone to jeesiness and he's prone to schlock as well. Uh, but I think for the most part, he he, mm-hmm. he exercises restraint in Event Horizon, which is weird because, you know, it has people... <laughs> turning themselves inside out and all sorts. <laughs> um, but yeah, absolutely. The, you know, there's that lovely shot of uh, when they first arrive in the Event Horizon and uh, one of the characters sees a speck of blood, a drop of blood, and they walk on and then the, the lighting sparks and illuminates all this flesh and gore behind them. Um, yeah. It's really creepy and I really like that stuff. Yeah, I, I was really shocked on the second viewing again this is like like 10 years later for me Mm. um i didn't see it in the cinema but i was shocked at how beautiful a lot of the production design is oh yeah when they're in the green corridors and stuff like that i mean the first time i watched it i was like i don't care what's beautiful and what's not because something is around the corner and i don't want (laughs) to see it um well the chamber with the drive in it is super cool oh it's amazing yeah Yeah, it's amazing production design so i was i was pretty amazed by that and i think that at that point the gore plays as a good like those things are almost like seductive to us because it's like again the hubris concept right we made these beautiful things these beautiful things do these amazing things and yet we unleash this darkness when we do the when we take it too far and so to contrast that you've got the gore so I, I agree with Chris. I think it's about right on. I think if you didn't have those horrific scenes of, if you didn't have the horrific scenes of the crew tearing each other apart, I don't think you have Event Horizon as a classic film that we're talking about right now. 
to a certain yeah. extent, right? Yeah. So I think it's necessary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you have you have to show the characters what's in store for them and the audience yeah. as well. But you're right; it's a beautifully designed film. I just looked up; it's uh, designed by uh, Joseph Bennett, who did the likes of Rome, went on to do the likes of Rome. But uh, hmm. you know, it's clear that obviously Anderson's taken his cue from you know, the likes of Alien and yeah. Solaris and, and uh, you know, and meticulously designed movies like that. But I think it's a really interesting. Really interesting design thing. I mean, you have you have doors that close, and as the doors close, they reveal teeth and spikes, and you're thinking, who designs this? Who builds <laughs> who builds a ship like this? Yeah, and it all comes back to, to William Weir, who clearly was a bit damaged from the off. Yeah, um, because it, there's references to him wanting to stay on the ship early on in the film. Mm because he believes that it's his home. So why is why do you guys think that is? Why is the event horizon his home? Hmm. I think it's the thing that he's infested the most emotionally uh, and physically. It's yeah. uh, it's something that he... You know, I don't think... You could maybe look for it, but I don't think that he is a, a, a willing architect of all this hellish destruction. I don't think he quite yeah. knew that the event horizon would, would do what it what it did. But it's it's very much implied that he was so dedicated to building this thing that that's what drove his relationship apart and caused his wife to commit suicide. And I think in the aftermath of that, he began to fixate on this thing, the on his this this ship, his you know this beautiful ship that he clearly is so so proud of and so so happy with. And uh, I don't think. He is, at the beginning of the film, I don't think he's intending to stay forever on the event horizon, but uh, as, uh, as the movie progresses, it becomes for him just the, the more palatable option by, by a country mile. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think there's a certain amount of, this is where his hubris comes in a lot. Mm. I think he thinks that he can sidestep all of the terrible things that have happened in his life by continuing to press in to his own hubris as opposed to like relinquishing it because he's he's when he sees his wife and he sees his the visions of his wife i doubt his wife committed suicide by gouging her own eyes out i would doubt that maybe maybe that happened but i just kind of doubt that (laughs) so as when he sees her he knows that that's not the wife that he probably last saw and yet he still thinks Oh, this is going to be redeemable. Like I can go into that dimension. I can bring my wife back out of that dimension. Dimension, and therefore I see the event horizon, my own hubris, the thing that I built as my way out of this situation. If he was, if you asked that character, how does one escape from hell? He would not do the sign of the cross over his chest. He would be like, "Oh, I'm just going to create science that can get me out of hell. I'm going to mm-hmm. do it myself. I'm going to figure mm-hmm. it out." Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that that's what the the film keeps pressing into. So that by the point that he fully embraces it, he's basically possessed with that selfish am- ambition that turns him into the devil. <laughs> yeah. At that point, so absolutely. Uh, and it's it's interesting to note as well that he, uh, you know, we see the movie. We we begin the movie with him having visions of his dead wife and being being contacted, being lured in by the event horizon. So we know from a very early stage that he is having these visions, and yet he denies it. He won't admit that something bad is going on, something hinky is going on. Uh, he won't admit to other people that he's wrong. He won't admit to other people that, he's, that he has fears. Mm. And this all goes back to what I was saying about him being a really interesting character. Um, it's not until the last 20 minutes that he goes full evil, but there's a gradual very interesting decline for the character as, as he goes along. And he's, um, he's abrasive with others. Uh, and the casting of Sam Neill is really interesting because obviously he had played the Antichrist before and, yeah. uh, in Omen 3. And, but I still think people look at Sam Neill and they think he's a warm, comforting presence. He's, you know, as you said, Alan Grant in Jurassic Park. He's, he's just a very avuncular guy. And... So you are inclined to give Weir the benefit of the doubt and to think that somehow he will throw off the, 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 the sort of, he'll throw off the, the appeal and the lure of the event horizon and save the day at the, end of the, at the end of the film. But it's all about his gradual corruption and all about his gradual seduction and, as you said, possession. Yeah. Yeah, and 
that's a really great point, and I, and I love how he is deceitful at the beginning of the film because mm-hmm. he's at, he's he's treating the whole thing like he's this kind of like oh I'm a scientist but I'm kind of an idiot and I have no idea how to travel through space and he kind of everyone else kind of leans into that with him and it's all kind of a ruse like he kind of gets what's all going to happen he kind of understands all of that but he's portraying that so that he can get his way to get where he wants to go yeah so that's kind of an interesting concept too Agreed. I mean, it, it does make a lot of sense when you think about it, really, that uh, the Event Horizon, this ship, this fabled ship that has disappeared for seven years and presumably hundreds of people died uh, on board, and they send one person. <laughs> if, if, if NASA is still around in 2047, presumably it would be Space Force by that point. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you would think they would send more high-ranking officials than just one guy. And who do they send? They send... Let's send the, um, yeah, it makes sense. Let's send the guy who built it so he knows the ship better than anybody else. But he's also kind of a broken dude. It's like, will he be able to handle the psychological rigors of what happens when they find the ship? And then and someone high up goes, yeah, sure, it'll be fine. There you go. Send him <laughs> off. Stamp, right. stamp, approved. Right, exactly, exactly. What do you guys think is the worst death? Oh. <laughs> Which death traumatizes <laughs> the you the most? <laughs> oh, my Lord. I have to go with Justin. I think just I mean, him slowly going out into the airlock and it's like, no, no, no. And then <laughs> Cooper trying to save him, but you know, it's hopeless. You know, he's, I mean, he survives, but you know, he's just like, oh, he's going to get so messed up. <laughs> <laughs> which, which of the crew members was like uh, strung up over the, over DJ. the, yeah, DJ. I'm going to, I might have to go with that that's dude. Pretty awful. I don't know how yeah. that happens, but that's not good. I don't, I don't, yeah. don't want to have anything to do with that. No, yeah, it's probably it's, it's DJ for me as well. I think also this was my first real exposure to Jason Isaacs. And he mm. is, for some reason, doing an Irish accent. And, and, and it's a fine Irish accent, I fully approve. But he is, re- I really like him in this movie. He strikes the tone perfectly. Uh, he owns pretty much every scene he's in. So it's a real shame and a real shock when he goes. And when he goes as... as, as grizzly and, uh, and and viscerally as he does because um, he has a great scene where he's explaining to Miller and he's basically Basil Exposition in it but you know that's very, very you know save yourself from hell liberate tutume ex enferis and he really sells that, that beautifully so yeah uh, yeah him yeah that's good that's good yeah um, let's talk about that phrase that save yourself from hell I mean that's probably just a literal a literal warning from the people on the ship to whoever comes but is that something you think we can do can we save ourselves from hell hmm. Oh wow <laughs> <laughs> This is the kind of question to you get with the story real keeps. hopeless on you here <laughs> I mean we're going to get if we're talking uh, the good place and the bad place <laughs> yeah. then you have to do an awful lot of good to atone for the bad you've done in your life uh, it depends because obviously there's there's some uh, readings of hell where you you basically do one horrible thing or one bad thing in your life and you're in hell and there's nothing you can do to stop that. Uh, then again, hey guys, we might actually be in hell right now. Maybe. <laughs> Ooh. That would be the the yeah. lost explanation, right? <laughs> Maybe that would be it. Maybe this is hell right now. Doing podcasts across the Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. Um, yeah, I think I'm I'm an optimist. And I think that uh, unless you have done something that is utterly unrepentant, murder someone, uh, download uh, films illegally off the internet, that sort of thing, <laughs> right. then I think you know, I think you can turn yourself around and turn your turn your life around. And uh, I don't think that anyone. What's interesting is that I don't think anyone on in the crew of the Event Horizon deserves their fate. Nobody has done anything really, really horrible. The, the, the worst thing that, uh, that they've done, Miller has left someone behind to die, but it was it, like the beginning of the Meg. Like, like Jonas, it's exactly like the beginning of the Meg, in fact. Uh, he leaves someone to die, and he's haunted by their, their screams for the rest of his life. But he had no choice in the matter. It was, it was, it was him or them. Yeah. It was greater good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it might have been interesting at, at a certain level, uh, you know, had the, the screenwriter Philip Eisner um, who I believe stayed on the production throughout, so it is his script. Um, had he introduced, say, for example, someone who really had a properly murky past, someone who had killed, someone who had, you know, who had maimed or, you know, cheated or stolen or was trying to hide from a from a secret past, 
and then you can play with ideas of, of, of guilt and redemption and whether we're all screwed from day one. <laughs> I think that that's, that's really good. I'm going to apologize in advance because I went crazy deep with my answer. So <laughs> mm-hmm. this, this like happens on my like show. Like you do. Yeah, I'm, on the show happens all the time. And I promise I will get back to the what I think the film is saying. Yeah. Um, I do think that you have to address the question from multiple angles because in a physical sense... I think there is the idea that we can make better choices or worse choices. We can make choices that hurt ourselves um, or hurt other people, or Mm -hmm. we can make choices that show love to ourselves um, or other people. So in that regard, I do think we can save ourselves from this physical version of hell, like a day-to-day thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. I can can make a choice in a moment to say something hurtful or to say something uplifting, and Mm -hmm. I can do either of those things. So I do think that hell can be a device of our own creation or of the creation of those around us when people are just super negative and just filled with kind of hate, right? That can create a a version of hell. Um, And so that there's some, there's some aspect of that where I think that this film delves into as well. Like um, Dr. Weir is, is he keeps pressing into creating a version of hell and realizing the actual hell in a greater, to a greater degree. So I think that that's part of it. I think the second angle, though, so that's like the physical part of it. The second angle is, is well, what's beyond the physical? What's the spiritual or if you want to mm. call it paranormal or whatever you want to call that? Um, this is where it gets really fascinating to me. And, and Chris, you were starting to lean into some of this, too, I think. But this is where I start to take it. I think that I can make better choices, but I don't think that I can make perfect choices. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is um, every once in a while we get a chance to make a perfect choice and we do something that's perfectly loving and it like showcases love to a bunch of people and everyone's like, eh, that's awesome. But I think like despite my best efforts, I still hurt the people around me intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, like mm-hmm. it's the worst when you do it intentionally and you do carry a lot of guilt like the people in this movie are carrying with yeah. them. Although I don't know if all of theirs were intentional when they hurt other people. So I think the question, the answer to the question for me is pretty challenging, because mm-hmm. um, because there's so many different answers to that question and it's so nuanced. So I think of it myself as well. I'm hurting people around me unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, at other times, and then I have to ask the question: Can I save myself from myself? I know that's a kind of a crazy thing to say, yeah. but mm-hmm. I think the answer is no. Like in my mind, the answer is no. Like. The, could I, could, if, if we were to weigh everything on a scale, could I do more good things than bad things? Like, yeah, but if I'm measuring myself on sort of like perfection, like obviously that's not a thing. Like I don't, I don't achieve it. So, I mean, I say this on the, on the show all the time. So apologies to everyone who hears me say this over and over <laughs> and over again. <laughs> but, you know, I've, I choose to follow Jesus Christ because I think I can't be perfect. So how can I rely upon myself? And if no one can be perfect... Are we even meant to be perfect? Are mm. we meant to, and or is, you know, you can ask this question too, is good just a societal construct? Um, mm. Is that, is good or morality just a societal contract? And I think that if we decided that good and morality was a societal contract or a societal uh, construct, mm-hmm. I would say, man, I don't know if I want to live in a world where it's just a societal construct, Mm. where it's actually better just to live out selfishly and to be like survival of the fittest at all costs. I don't Mm -hmm. know if I want to live in that world. So if if I'm trying, if I say that good is actually a thing and Mm -hmm. that good equals love, then I've got to turn towards things that are loving. And so to me, that's where I'm going to turn to a thing where I say, well, if I can't be perfectly loving, then I've got to lean into something that I believe is perfectly loving so that it will transform me to keep being more loving. Um, yes. and so that's kind of how I would get there. Personally. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So Amazing. I don't know. I think the, the film suggests that maybe that pride and hubris, this is what kind of one of the things I really like about it is that like these negative things like pride, hubris, guilt, selfishness, having your eyes gouged out, (laughs) having your eyes gouged out, (laughs) like those being hell, like actually speaks to me as an individual because I go, yeah, I think those things are all hell and we can create hell on earth by making bad choices, but we all kind of create some version of hell in our lives because we're not perfect. So what, what, how do I save myself from that? That's kind of where I take it. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's, there's, there's again, it goes back to what I said earlier on. There's two manifestations of hell in this movie. There's the, the physical hell, 
and you can save yourself from hell in this movie by getting onto Lewis and Clark, or what's left of it, <laughs> right? <laughs> and somehow getting away from the event horizon. And for most of the characters, the influence of the event horizon wanes with distance. That seems fairly clear. But then there's mm -hmm. the other hell as well, this sort of metaphysical hell, the emotional hell that, that Miller is in particularly. That's, you know, I say we should probably focus on Miller uh, because he's the one that has the, the, the greatest sense of loss, mm -hmm. we are aside. And you get the sense that had he survived, had he somehow managed to get away at the end, that he would you know, he hasn't saved himself from hell in that way. Um, I don't think that he has, uh, that he has, he'll, he'll always have that guilt and it, it will never be resolved for him. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And now it's even worse because he's stuck in the actual hell uh, <laughs> <Right>. being tortured <laughs> by, by naked Sam Neill. Yeah. <laughs> on a daily basis. Yeah. With no eyes. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, nobody wants that. No. That's probably why he's naked because he can't see that he doesn't have clothes on. Put some clothes on, dude. I mean, if you think about it that way, I'm siding with the raptors. You know, I'm like, go ahead, kill him. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this film, uh, this film absolutely got me whenever I was, whenever I saw it, uh, and uh, also one of my flatmates. I don't know if I ever mentioned this on the Empire podcast, but uh, my flatmate at the time, a guy called Graham. Uh, you know, I was dreaming about this movie for about two weeks, and so, and so was he afterwards. And uh, one of the ways that he he channeled that that energy, that negative energy, was he created a comic strip called "The Continuing Adventures of Doctor Weir and Captain Miller in Hell." And it was, <laughs> no way. It was he only he only did four, but he did four one-page comic strips in which <laughs> that always ended with some variation on. Well, we're going. We won't need eyes to see. Uh, and always ended with. <laughs> so it was. It was. It was Miller. Oh my Miller would. Miller and Weir would go to some. They would go to. A, they would go on a cruise. They would go on a, a nice cruise, or they'd go to the beach. And Miller's trying to have a lovely time, and then Weir comes in and keeps trying to turn people into hell beasts, and keeps yelling, "Do you see? Do you see?" <laughs> and that that was that was their hell. That was the hell that they were trapped in. And uh, I, I've did he ever make this public? Does it exist anywhere for people have, to see? I have two. I have two of them, and I posted one of them. I've posted one of them on Twitter from from time to time. Okay. I may post one uh, if I can find it. Let me know uh, once once this is up. I'll post it as well so okay. people can see. Awesome. <laughs> people nice. can see. <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. Um, well, we're starting to wind down here. I got just one more question for you. That was a really deep one, so I'm just going to throw kind of a shallow, fun one at you guys. For me, this movie ends with a little bit, not like inception levels of ambiguity, but I feel like there might be a little bit of ambiguity. Do you think that the survivors on the Lewis and Clark are actually safe and actually did survive, or do you think that the evil or the darkness or whatever it is has maybe extended beyond the event horizon and followed them home? I always, when it comes to horror films, I tend to err on the side of the optimistic. So <laughs> uh, I feel that they're okay and that it is just an indication that Stark is going to have some serious PTSD for yeah. the rest of her life. Um, but it is, it's a, very, it's a very deliberately ambiguous ending, isn't it? And mm. you know, that, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing is one of my favorite movies of all time, and that is one of the rare horror movies that, that earns that ambiguous ending. Mm. Uh, I think, for the most part, that sort of cop-out, fake-out, one-last-scare ending that was obviously influenced by the likes of Carrie, I'm not a fan. I'm yeah. not a fan. And so the, the ending is one of the things that has always struck a slightly false note for me because it's one of those things you're waiting for it. You're waiting for that last scare. Yeah. And then it comes. Um, but, yeah, no, I think they're okay. I think they're fine. I think I'm going to go in the other direction. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, let's, let's just put it this way. I want to believe that they're fine, and that's what I tell myself before I go to bed at night. <laughs> but um, <laughs> th here, here's, here's where I think uh, the possibility for them not to be fine exists. I think that the film uh, made the clear choice to present the darkness in a, in a way that suggests that uh, the darkness is within us. Like it says that several times, mm -hmm. right? The dark is within us. And so I think that the event horizon is actually more a catalyst for the realization 
like it's a catalyst for them to realize that that's true as opposed to um so it's also like chris has said multiple times it's the embodiment of both the actual hell and then the metaphorical hell so it's like both um so the before the event horizon humanity has its own hubris and pride look at what we can do kind of like but after the event horizon humanity and the humans on the ship at least have realized that um that this humanity is flawed and that those flaws are internal and yet have an impact that's external. And I just think that that's really intense. But as they go home, it's not that they've avoided hell, it's that they've been made aware of its existence. And once they know it exists, they can mm -hmm. never escape that knowledge. Yes. <laughs> right? Agreed. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. On a, on, a, on a metaphysical level, yes. But I think on a physical level, they're okay at the end of the film. Um, yes, I would agree yes. with that too. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. It's a good distinction there, and I agree with that. Physically, they're okay. Yes. Well, and my answer yes. is really simple. I'm going to side with Chris. My answer is really simple. <laughs> I want to be optimistic. I want them to be okay. There's no sequel, so I think they're okay. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Yeah. Good point. That's my answer. What, what could a sequel be? But also, there's an interesting distinction in the film in that after they escape or after Miller blows up, uh, the event horizon and goes to hell with with Weir. Uh, there's a there's an intertitle card. There's a seventy. It says seventy two days later, and I don't think that the evil on board the event horizon is the sort of evil that bides its time. I don't oh, think it yeah. lets these people go to sleep. Uh, it would be bombarding them with visions and mm. bad dreams and, and everything uh, right from the off. So I think that's that's one of the biggest clues that uh, that the end is just it's just a vision. It's just a, it's not, not even a vision. It's um, it's just a uh, uh, hallucination on Stark's part. Yeah, that's a great point. That makes sense. Yeah. And I like that because it ends with hope. So that's yeah. where we can end. We can end with hope. <laughs> yeah. so, so, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today, sir. No, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. It has been a blast. Yeah, absolutely. Really great talking to you. Now we're to that part of the show where we get into our contributor questions and answers. So this is if you if you support us on Patreon for $5 a month or more, we will read answers to questions we ask on Patreon. We will read your answers on the show. And that's what we're going to do right now. So the question of the week, given that it's of the Event Horizon show, the question is, Alien and then all of its sequels, Sunshine, Event Horizon, Pitch Black, Sphere. Sequels in air quotes. <laughs> yeah. The list goes on and on. In your opinion, though, what's the best, quote, spaceship quest, unquote, scary movie, and why? Okay, well, Mary Baldwin says Alien. So it's the first of the series. We didn't know anything about the aliens yet. And discovering the face huggers, the chest burst scene. Oh, so gross. <laughs> the sounds, the cat, the acid blood. There's just so much that was phenomenal about it. The fact that they didn't tell the cast the full truth about the chest burst scene and their reactions were genuine. I never knew that. When their faces were covered with splattered blood. I love this movie. Some of the others were really good too, but there's just something about the original when it was all brand new. So that's from Mary Baldwin. Yes, and from Jim Baldwin, this is probably not surprising, they both love the same movie. So Go also figure. Alien. Uh, Jim says, Alien, it was new. I don't think anyone had done a movie like that before. It was like you were discovering what was going on right along with the crew. I don't think you could fill in the gaps of what to expect like you could with other scary movies because it was a new type of scary. Plus, watching it in the theater with the surround sound and hearing the noise the aliens make coming from different directions and sections of the ship were very dark, and that always makes everything feel more intense. He also says the tagline was awesome in space. No one can hear you scream, which is awesome. Uh, and he also says after Mary's comment, he goes, yeah, I forgot about the cat. Watching the shadows cross the cat's face of Harry Dean Stanton getting killed and hearing his screams is creepy. The cat's expression is the cherry on top of that sequence. Nice. And then we have Monty Thigpen with I, for one, not being a fan of scary movies, can't contribute that much. However, Apollo 18 gives me the heebie-jeebies anytime someone talks about it, which I believe Apollo 18 is a story where there's something evil and nefarious behind the moon landing. I think so. Yeah, yeah. something happens up there. 
I don't know. I avoided it because it seemed like a Transformers Dark Side of the Moon type of situation. <laughs> I think it's better than that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so thank you to the $5 a month contributors. Uh, really appreciate you guys and love to hear your opinions. Love to read them on the show. Thank you for submitting them. If you would like to submit your contributor answers, just go to our Patreon page, support us for $5 a month or more, and your opinion could be given on our show. That is it for today's show. Special thanks to Chris Hewitt for joining us today. Coming up next week on the Story Geeks podcast, we will be sharing our top five time travel movies yeah. with the mics from the ESO podcast. So don't forget to subscribe. You don't want to miss out on that. You also don't want to miss out on some of the other shows coming up like Daryl talked about in the beginning. We have great guests. We have great shows. All coming up throughout the rest of the month. And... We have a really cool aftercast that you can go check out. I've already mentioned it a couple times, but it is available on Patreon right now. Listen to us talk more about the movies we watched and discussed in Scary Movie Month. It's free for now, but it will be available only to Patreon subscribers. So maybe you just become a Patreon subscriber. Do it. Get it for the (laughs) lifetime that it'll be up there. So go check all that out. I want to clarify, too. In the intro for this, I mentioned a podcast where Chris spends six hours breaking down a two-hour film yes that was a reference to the empire podcast spoiler special of spoiler specials i should say of mission impossible fallout literally six hours of chris hewitt talking to christopher mcquarrie director of the film and breaking it down and all fascinating they're all every, oh my gosh every it's so fun to listen to yeah so go sure check is. that stuff out um, and be sure to connect with us in the Story Geeks Facebook group. Um, head on over there. Let us know your thoughts on today's show. Give us some ideas for the future. And get engaged what really is a growing community of people that really love this stuff. If you enjoyed today's show or any of the Story Geeks podcast, please share our show with a geek friend. Links to everything we've talked about today are in the show notes. And thanks for listening. And as always, question everything in your favorite scary stories. And always seek the truth. <laughs>